Good morning, everyone. Joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, I was thinking as we were singing that song earlier, I love that refrain, uh, even, even when I don't see that you're working, even when I don't feel that you're working, you never stop working. It's a good, good reminder for us of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. Even when we don't see it or feel it or feel like it's happening, that God is still working around us. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Hopefully we're talking about that each week, but God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate in the sacraments. It's God's faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ and his continuing work in us. So our passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 45. That's a lot to cover. We're not going to read it all at once. We're going to break it up throughout the sermon, so just uh, hang with me on that. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5, and we're going to read to start through verse 25, and let's pray before we read this morning. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks uh, for this morning. And for the gift of being together, uh, Lord, I would think of the psalm where it said, I rejoiced when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Uh, Lord, we have uh, rejoiced as we have come together uh, to worship you this morning. We pray that, that this Advent and Christmas season, that you would fill us up with your joy uh, as we wait the coming of your son into the world and celebrate it once again and all, all that that meant for us as your people. And we pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us once again uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you open our hearts to receive your word this morning? And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting at verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day that this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Skipping to verse 23. 
And when this time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Uh, so uh, we're starting this morning a, a series in the Gospel of Luke. This is going to take us through Easter and a little bit past Easter of next year. Uh, we'll be looking at Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, but in this Advent season, as we're, we're looking at these passages from the beginning of Luke, uh, as Phil said, we're, we're considering the theme of waiting for good news. Waiting for good news. And I like this idea or this theme. It resonates with me at least because I think all of us are waiting for good news. If I said to you this morning, who wants to hear some good news? Who would say, yeah, Joe is waiting for good news. I appreciate that, right? Sometimes maybe when we're feeling a little extra grumpy, not right now, no thanks. But most of the time we're very happy to get good news. We like getting a word that something good has happened or is about to happen. That there are things for us to celebrate in this life. And so we're, whether we realize it or not, we're always sort of waiting for good news. Sometimes we're waiting for very specific good news. Sometimes good news comes to us and we think, oh, I'm so glad I heard that. I couldn't wait to hear that. It could be as simple as knowing that a good friend is coming to visit you, that this is good news, or a loved one, you're about to see a loved one, this is good news. Or maybe we're waiting to hear about a, a job, some sort of employment or a promotion, or that a sick loved one has gotten well, that they have come back to health. A lot of us here, I know we are waiting for news about visas. That is a constant prayer request in this congregation. We're waiting to hear about good news about our status. Can we stay or do we have to go? And so we're waiting for good news. Maybe we're waiting to hear about the end of, of one of these wars that we keep hearing about in the news. That would be something to celebrate. If we went home today and heard that the war between Russia and Ukraine had ended for good, that would be good news, and we would celebrate it. We're waiting for good news like that, whether we realize it or not. And this is the whole idea of Advent, that people are waiting for good news. People are waiting for the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. This, this miraculous, uh, life-altering event that, that changed everything for everyone, everywhere, for all time. That's what the birth of Jesus Christ did. And people were waiting for this good news. That the Messiah, God's anointed one, the, the savior of Israel and the savior of the whole world, the savior of the nations, was coming into the world. And people were waiting for him to arrive, but they didn't know when it was going to come. And this is where the gospel of Luke starts. This is where we are when we get to Luke chapter 1. These passages that we're looking at today and over the next couple weeks, they have lots of people waiting. There are lots of people waiting. We see Zechariah and Elizabeth in our passage today. We see Mary. In chapter 2, we meet Simeon and Anna. And all of these people are waiting for different things. The Gospel of Luke starts with this sense of expectancy, that something big is about to happen. We as the readers feel that at least, even if the people in the story don't know it yet. Whenever you have angels start to show up and announce things, right? There's this sense that something big is going to happen. And so this morning we're going to focus on the stories of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. These maybe familiar stories to us from Luke chapter 1. 
A lot of times these passages are considered separately from each other. There's plenty of material here for several sermons, but we also have a lot to gain by looking at them all together as one story. So that's what we're going to do this morning. That's why we have so much scripture to read. What is God doing here with Elizabeth and Zechariah? And what is God doing also with Mary in Luke chapter 1? We have these two sort of parallel plot lines with many similarities between them, these these miraculous pregnancies and and the announcement of these births, the same angel comes, the relatives with each other, but there's also some significant contrasts in them. Uh, And these two stories come to intersect with each other at the end of what we're going to be looking at today. So first we're going to be looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth. And a lot of what we want to focus on this morning is the response that these people have to the good news that they receive. What is the response that they have to the good news that they receive? So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're an older Jewish couple. They've been given high praise here in Luke. Luke has nice things to say about them. We're told that they were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, this isn't meant to describe them as as sinless people or perfect people. They haven't attained this higher level of righteousness than any of us can. But they are an example of the kind of people that we would consider to be faithful or devout. They have committed their lives to serving the Lord. And by all accounts, they are attempting to live that out, to be obedient to God. These are faithful people. When Luke describes them as being righteous in the sight of God, this is what he's talking about, that these are people who have put their trust and hope in God. We remember uh, way back in Genesis, we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is something that the New Testament writers repeat about him as well. And this is the same thing that we're seeing with Zechariah and Elizabeth, that these are people who have believed God. And so it is counted to him them as righteousness. They have put their trust and hope in the Lord, and this would have pleased God. Elizabeth and Zechariah, I like to think about them this way. They're the kind of people that if they were alive today, and if they were members of a local congregation like ICP, then they would be ones that people would look up to. We would look up to them in the church. They would be sought out for their wisdom. And if we had something we needed somebody to pray about, these would be the people that we would go to because we knew that they would do it. These are the uh, kind of people that we might ask to disciple us. I want to grow in my faith in the Lord. Would you help me do that? That's the kind of people that Elizabeth and Zechariah are. They're pillars of the church kind of people. And their devotion to God was well suited to their position in Israelite society because they were both descendants of Moses' brother Aaron. They were members of the priestly class. And Zechariah, as we're told, was a priest who at certain times during the year would have been signed, uh, assigned to serve in the temple like he is in our passage today. So not only were Elizabeth and Zechariah righteous in the sight of God, but they also had this sort of elevated social status by virtue of their family lineage. So all of this, what it's telling us is that Elizabeth and Zechariah have a lot going for them. When we meet Zechariah in our passage, he's serving in the temple. He's been, he's been chosen to burn incense inside the sanctuary. And this is a statement that's full of, of lots of meaning. It's considered a great honor, this job that he has. 
partly because it was believed that God handpicked people to go and serve in this way. They would cast lots. And whoever the lot went to, that was the person who was meant to go serve in this way in the temple, believing that God was behind the selection and the casting of lots. But also because of the location of the service. Zechariah was serving in the sanctuary, which was, was thought to be as close as anyone could get to God's presence, other than the high priest once a year who would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So if you're going to have a divine encounter like this one, if you're going to have an angel appear and speak to you, then you might expect it to happen just like it does here with Zechariah. He's in the temple, he's a priest, he's serving the Lord in this way. Uh, And so the angel shows up. This would not be, it was unexpected, but this might be how you would think it would happen if someone told you an angel was going to come talk to you. And so Gabriel appears to him and announces a miraculous pregnancy and a miraculous birth that was coming, the first of two in our story today. And this is the good news that Zachariah and Elizabeth have been waiting for. Although they had come to the point in their lives where they had stopped waiting to hear this good news. This is part of what we've been told about them. For so long they had desired to have a child, and yet they had been unable to conceive. And in this, Elizabeth and Zechariah are in the company of many couples in Scripture and throughout the rest of history who have desired to, to have children but were unable to. And it had become a source of great grief for them and also a source of shame It was grief for them because they did desire children and they couldn't have any like they wanted to. But they had also become the subject of judgment by many people in their culture who saw the inability to conceive as a sort of divine punishment for sin and disobedience in some way, an unfair judgment that was placed on them. And so it just added to their grief, this this shame that other people were putting on them. Now, we've already been told that this was not the case. This was not true. They didn't have this sin and disobedience in their life. This was not God's punishment for them. But for others to think that way about them would have added to the pain and loss that they already felt. And now here they were, and they were, they were too old to conceive. Whatever hopes they had had were in the past. And so their lives had moved on from this hope that they had had for so long, or at least so it seemed. But then Gabriel appears and says to Zechariah, I have good news for you. I have good news for you. Because your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and she is going to bear you a son. And he is going to be the source of great joy and delight for you. And not only that, but he has a special role to play in God's redemptive plan. He is coming to you in the spirit of Elijah, and the Holy Spirit is going to be on him even before he is born. And he is going to turn people far away from God back to them. He's going to turn the disobedient back to places of righteousness. In fact, John is often considered sort of the last of the Old Testament prophets here at the beginning of Luke because of what he had come to do. And his real job, of course, was to point everyone to the one coming after him, his cousin, Jesus Christ. Everything Gabriel is telling Zechariah is just gift upon gift upon gift. God has heard your prayer, and he is giving you what you have asked for. He is fulfilling your deepest longings for yourself. But not only that, he is fulfilling the deepest longings of your people Israel through the birth of this son. 
And Zechariah's response, though we, we can sympathize with him, I think, uh, leaves something to be desired. He says, how can I be sure of this? I don't believe you. My wife and I are too old. Prove it. That's what he's saying. Prove it. How can I be sure of this? I need a sign. What Zechariah is going on with him and Elizabeth, uh, it reminds us, or it should remind us, of the doubtful response that we hear all the way back in Genesis. When God tells Abraham that he is going to have a son and be the father of many nations. And you can remember that Abraham's wife, when she heard this news, she laughed at the idea that she would give birth to Isaac at the age of 90 years old. She too had doubts. She too said, this can't be true. This cannot happen. Zechariah seems to be forgetting that Israel traces its very origin back to a similar story of God's promise and miraculous work, of a miraculous conception and birth. And so he asks for proof. He says, how can I know that this is true? He wants some sort of sign. And so he's given one. He's given one. Gabriel says, fine, here's your sign. You can't talk until this baby's born. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Elizabeth might have been pleased by this. We don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say. But Elizabeth responds more faithfully to this, this news, this good news that she gets of the pregnancy. And this is what we see. She responds much more faithfully. Zechariah, he's the priest. He's the one that's serving in the temple who's burning incense at the altar. We think he should know better. Elizabeth, his wife, is the one who knows better and sees what is truly going on here. And her response is one of praise for the favor that he has shown her, that God has shown her, for taking away her disgrace among the people. And we do see that Zechariah has his redemption, that he will demonstrate his own faithful response later in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, when his son is born, and everybody assumes that he will be named after Zechariah, and Zechariah says, no, his name is John, which means that the Lord is gracious. This is the name that Gabriel has told him to name his son. And not only that, but he composes this beautiful prophetic song about the call placed on his son's life. And so Zechariah, we shouldn't beat up on him too much. He does come around. So this is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their response to the good news that God has sent to them. And then we come to Mary, their relative, and another announcement of a miraculous pregnancy and a miraculous birth. And so we're gonna read again uh, from Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38 at this point. In the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This too is the word of the Lord. This story is one that's probably a little more familiar to us, certainly no less wonderful than the one that we just read about Zechariah and Elizabeth. And when we meet Mary, she also is waiting. She's not waiting to have a child. She's not waiting to give birth, but she's waiting to get married. She is engaged to Joseph. Mary is related to Elizabeth, we're told, but, but her life is a world away from Elizabeth's. Mary is young, she's unmarried, she's living in the tiny town, maybe even village of Nazareth, far away from the capital of Jerusalem. She has no status that we are aware of, she's not established in society. So while, and while for ha- Elizabeth having a child relieved her shame, for Mary at this stage in her life where she is, a pregnancy will bring shame upon her because she is not yet married. But Gabriel appears to Mary with this very news. She is highly favored by God. And her son is the one that all of Israel has been waiting for. It's another miraculous pregnancy that we've been told about here. Though uh, this is good news, it's perhaps hard for Mary to receive it that way. And Mary expresses her doubts to Gabriel too. Her pregnancy also defies the laws of biology just like Elizabeth's. And she says, how can this be? For I am a virgin. I've heard one pastor say before uh, that as modern people, we often have a hard time in believing this idea of the virgin birth. And he said, if you think you have a hard time believing in the virgin birth, imagine how Mary felt about it, right? Uh, She knew, she knew. Uh, This defies the laws of biology. This is a miraculous pregnancy that is being announced here. And it is good news because this is going to be the son of God. Mary has been highly favored. And yet to receive this news was troubling to her because it was going to turn her life upside down and it was going to bring shame upon her because of this. This is good news for Mary, for Israel, for the whole world. But Mary maybe doesn't see it that way at first. But eventually Mary comes to the place of humble surrender to God's will, saying at the end of this section, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Some translations of this verse say, let it be to me as you have said. Mary is saying, listen, God, whatever you have in store for me, I am willing to accept it. She has just received good news that's going to turn her world upside down, and yet she places her life in the Lord's hands, trusting in God's sovereignty and grace, saying, I am the Lord's servant. So this is where we see Mary's response this humble submission to God's sovereignty in her life. And from here, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And it's here that these two stories intersect. And so we'll read this last part of our passage today, verses 39 through 45. It says, At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. 
Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. This too is the word of the Lord. So Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and greets her. We're not told exactly why Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. It's somewhat maybe unorthodox for a young, unmarried, pregnant girl to travel the the hundred plus kilometers over rocky, hilly terrain to go and visit this relative. But perhaps it was just her natural response to hearing this miraculous news. The same thing that's happening to me is happening to you. And maybe she just wants to go and talk to Elizabeth about this because she's in a similar situation. But whatever her reason for going, Mary's visit emphasizes the connection that we see between Jesus and John. It brings the stories that we've been following together. And the stories of Jesus and John the Baptist are completely tied up with each other. What God is doing through them, even though they have different roles, is not two separate things. They are not on two separate missions, but God is doing the same thing through them, bringing redemption to his people, Israel. And so it's important for us to see this connection between them, even these two babies in the womb. And Mary greets Elizabeth. And you wouldn't necessarily think that this was something that would be that significant, uh, that Mary would come and greet her relative when she arrives. And yet we're told three times in this story that Mary greets Elizabeth, which means that we need to pay attention to what's going on here, that there's something in it for us. And the main thing I think for us to notice about this greeting, the reason it's so significant, is because of the the responses to it, the responses that this greeting receives. And the first thing that we notice is the joy of these responses. And I'm glad that we get to this point uh, in, in our passage, this point of joy. What happens is when Mary greets Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy. And Elizabeth exclaims in a loud voice. And then she points out that her baby had leapt for joy in her womb. When you read through the first two chapters of Luke, I hope that you feel this joy. It's everywhere. We see it time and time again. I have come to bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. The angel tells Zechariah that John's birth will be met with rejoicing and that God has sent him to bring the good news. And we see it in these reactions. And we'll see it again when John is born and when Jesus is born. The angel brings good news to everyone about this. These pregnancies are joyous events, and the births of these babies will be reason to celebrate. Sometimes when we're, when we're teaching up here or preaching up here, it's hard to, to communicate the emotion that's going on behind a passage. But these passages give us a reason to smile. They should give us a reason to smile. Pregnancies and births, particularly of these two babies. These are happy verses that we are looking at today. So this is the first response, these responses of joy. And then we have this, this, we want to look closer at John the Baptist. The baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. And this is such a great image. If the baby in the womb responds this way, then you know that something is up, that this is significant. Uh, my wife, Vale, has a friend from college, and, and back in the days when they were all uh, pregnant and having babies, uh, she would come, and she was pregnant at our baby shower, and she came up to Vale, and she's like, Vale. When I saw you, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, right? As if to say there's this special connection between my baby and yours already in the womb. It was this joke that she had. There's this special bond here. But that's what Luke is doing again too. He's setting up this relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus in this sense. That even already there is this special relationship between these two. 
John has been appointed a prophet whose job is to point to the Lord, to point people to Jesus Christ, to show other people to him. There's a famous uh, piece of artwork, and I can't remember who painted it, but where there's John the Baptist, and he's standing off to the side, and he's just pointing at Jesus on the cross, right? Uh, and, And this is what he's doing, right? This is John's whole job, is to point to other people, to Jesus Christ. Even from the womb, John is fulfilling the role that he has been given by the Lord. He recognizes Christ's lordship and responds to it. And that's the other side of the relationship between them, that John is prophet and Jesus is Lord. This is the first place in Luke where Jesus is called Lord. Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. And the use of this term Lord in Luke for Jesus is really important. Because when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek all those years ago, when it was translated, God's name, Yahweh, everywhere it appeared in the Hebrew, it was translated into Greek as kurios, or Lord. And we've seen Luke use this word already when talking about the God of Israel. And so when Elizabeth refers to Jesus, even in the womb, as my Lord. What she's saying here at the beginning of this gospel is that this baby in Mary's womb is the very God of Israel, the Lord. This is who we are dealing with, even this child in the womb. The same God who created the heavens and the earth, who makes a covenant with Abraham, who led the Israelites out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, who has promised to redeem Israel and the nations, is right now a little baby in his mommy's tummy, the way that we like to say it in our house. That's kind of a big deal that we're looking at in this passage. And so baby John and his mother's womb and Elizabeth, they both recognize Jesus as Lord already in the womb, just from Mary's greeting. John leaps. Elizabeth exclaims with a loud cry, How did they know? How did they know? This is where we find the Holy Spirit at work in our passage today. The Holy Spirit. Verse 42 says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit before she calls Jesus Lord. And in verse 15, again, we were told that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see Christ who allows us to recognize his work in us and to recognize his work in the world around us. It's the Holy Spirit who allows us to witness Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has brought to us. And as we go through Luke together over the next several months, we'll see that the Holy Spirit is one of the main characters in this gospel, the one who guides and empowers Jesus' life and ministry which should remind us as a church today that our life and ministry relies completely on the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. And the most important thing that we can pray for as a church is that the Holy Spirit would fill us up and guide us and empower us for ministry. That the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to Christ's presence and work in our lives. We want the Holy Spirit to be present with us the same way that the Holy Spirit was present at that time with Elizabeth and John the Baptist. So to close today, I want to leave us with with three brief statements from this passage, from from Luke chapter one, but they're brief but very powerful. And here's what they are, these three statements. The first comes from the angel Gabriel regarding God's power and faithfulness. And when speaking to Mary in verse 37, Gabriel says this, for no word from God will ever fail. 
No word from God will ever fail. This is the, the NIV translation. Some other versions of the Bible, maybe ones that you have heard or are more familiar with, say this, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And both of these ways of translating it tell us something important about God and God's faithfulness to us. The first is this. Nothing is impossible with God. Our God is the all-powerful, almighty God. And nothing is impossible for him. The one we are dealing with here is the creator of the heavens and the earth. The one who can bring life from a virgin's womb. And it is important for us to remember this about our God, that he is all-powerful and nothing is impossible for him. But the NIV's translation uh, focuses more on God's faithfulness to his promises, not just his great power, saying that no word from God will ever fail. And this tells us that God is faithful and we can trust him and we can count on him. God is going to bring about the births of John and Jesus, just as he said, And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his only son, God will forgive the sins of his people. He will save them. And he has promised to do this, and it can be counted on. What this version of the the verse tells us, this NIV translation, is not that God will do anything that we ask of him just because he's all-powerful, just because nothing is impossible for him. What it tells us is that God is faithful to his word. And what he has promised us, he will bring about. This is God's faithfulness to us. So God is faithful, faithful to send his son and to save his people. So that's the first statement about God's power and his faithfulness. And the second statement that I want to leave us with is is from Mary's response to Gabriel in verse 38. And we looked at it a little bit already where she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. As we've already said, this is a response of humble submission to God's sovereignty that Mary sets for us an example here of how we should respond to God's call in our lives. She has received good news, but her life will be more complicated and more difficult because of this good news that she has received. And we see her in this passage wrestling with it. It troubles her and she has her doubts. But Gabriel says to her, do not fear, for you have found favor with God. Friends, I know many of us wrestle with God's call on our lives. We wrestle with the things that he has called us to do. We wrestle with the things that he calls us to leave behind. And the faithful response for all of us is given here by Mary, that we want to get to a point where we can say, I am the Lord's servant. Whatever that means, wherever that leads, God, my life is in your hands. It's important for us to remember, though, that this is her response to Gabriel's promise of God's faithfulness. Mary responds this way because of who God is, powerful, loving, gracious, and faithful. This is the kind of God that we can say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me as you have said. And the third statement comes at the very end of our passage today with Elizabeth's statement to Mary. Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. Mary believed God, also like Abraham. And this is a blessing in and of itself. To believe God, to trust in him and his promises is a blessing to Mary. 
You'll notice that Elizabeth here is speaking in the second person, uh, or excuse me, the third person declaring this blessing. She goes uh, to say, blessed is she. And this may be to include herself in this blessing because she too has believed in God's promise to her. In reading through this passage, I found Elizabeth to be maybe sort of an unsung hero from this story. We hear more about Zechariah. We hear more about Mary. Elizabeth, we don't hear much about after this. And yet Elizabeth seems to be the one who really knows what's going on here. The one who gives praise and thanksgiving to God at the good news that she's received. The one who greets Mary with joy, who says, this is a good thing that's happened to you. This is good news. And who can point to Mary and say, blessed are you. For God has had favor on you. So Mary, uh, excuse me, Elizabeth may be including herself in this blessing, but it also sends that blessing to each one of us, saying, blessed is the one who believes that there will be a fulfillment to us of what is spoken from the Lord. Friends in Christ, we we have an all-powerful God, and nothing is impossible for him. It wasn't impossible for Zechariah and Elizabeth. It wasn't impossible for Mary And it's not impossible in your life either. Nothing is impossible for God in your life either. And this God is faithful to all that he has promised. We can count on his word. And his ultimate promise to us is that we are saved from our sins through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. This promise is for you today, my friends. This promise is for you today. And our faithful response is to say with Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May his word to me be fulfilled. And as Elizabeth says to Mary, the blessing of the Lord comes to us when we respond to him in faith this way. This is the message of Advent each year that we are blessed as we wait for and believe in God. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what else can we do but to respond uh, like Elizabeth with praise and thanksgiving for your faithfulness to us? We thank you for all you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his birth and the joy that comes with it. We thank you also for his death and his resurrection and, and what that means for us, that you have saved us from our sins. And we pray that we could have uh, respond faithfully like Mary as well. And say that we are your servants, Lord. Our lives are in your hands. Do with us what you will. Make us ready to follow you wherever you would lead, Lord, in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.